Tonight on PBS News Weekend, the latest from Ukraine as the war-torn country prepares to mark the first anniversary of the Russian invasion. There is no doubt these are crimes against humanity. Then a new study shows that the stress of things like racism, poverty, and other trauma can change the structure of children's brains. And what's needed to care for people with dementia and the caregivers who support them. Good evening, I'm John Yang. It's been nearly a year since Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And today, for the first time, the United States labeled Russians ac Russia's actions there as crimes against humanity. The war stands at a crossroads. Both Moscow and Kyiv hope to gain momentum in the coming weeks. Nick Schifrin is in Kramatorsk, Ukraine, near the front line. Nick's reporting in Ukraine is supported by the Pulitzer Center. 1,100 miles from the front, Vice President Harris today detailed Russian crimes and called for accountability. Russian forces have pursued a widespread and systemic attack against a civilian population. Gruesome acts of murder, torture, rape, and deportation. Among her examples of crimes against humanity, a Russian strike on a Mariupol theater that killed hundreds of women and children as they hid. And the Russian massacre and mass graves of Bucha. Ukraine has gone a step further and accused Russia of genocide. That was a word repeated today in Munich by Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitryo Kuleba, who also predicted the West would go further than it's been willing on weapons and send jets. I will take a risk of saying that Ukraine will receive planes. It's a matter of time and procedure. But that's time Ukrainian soldiers don't have. They're barely holding Bakhmut, the epicenter of the fighting. Much of the city has been abandoned or destroyed, and Russians are closing in on three sides. I don't have any emotions in this war. I treat it as my job. For me to execute a shot is the same as sending a piece of mail. There are no emotions whatsoever. And that's the sense from all the soldiers I speak to. Whenever I ask them if they've lost men, they've lost friends, they each tear up and ask me to change the subject. War is overwhelming in so many ways, but these soldiers out here know they don't have time to mourn. John, the fact is that the fiercest fighting may be yet to come. Nick, I want to go back to where the, you started in the tape with Vice President Harris's announcement about uh, crimes against humanity. Are there practical effects of this declaration? It's such a great question because the question is how to hold Russia accountable for the crimes against humanity. The problem is that the U.S. and Ukraine don't agree on the answer to that question. Ukraine consistently demands the creation of what's called the Special Tribunal for the Crime of Aggression. That's likely the easiest way to try Russian leaders, including Putin himself, but the U.S. is not on board with that. Another option is to create a hybrid court with Ukrainian prosecutors. The U.S. hasn't publicly supported that either. A third option is kind of a halfway step, create an interim prosecutor to prepare for a future crime of aggression trial. The U.S. is more likely to support that step. So far, publicly, the only body the U.S. supports 
is the ICC they, because they say they don't want to dilute the ICC's work. But, John, the ICC has not launched a single indictment. And so the process of how to hold Russia accountable, let alone actually holding Russia accountable, is still many months, if not years, away. And, Nick, to get back to things on the ground, this is your fourth visit to Ukraine since the full-scale Russian invasion. What does it look like now? What do the front lines look like now? The front lines are very active, much more so even than a few months ago, especially here in Donetsk province. That is where U.S. and Ukrainian officials believe that the Kremlin is focused, trying, at least in the short term, to seize the entire province. Uh, and this Russian offensive looks like much of the previous Russian offensives, largely focused on artillery around the city of Bakhmut, where U.S. officials now say the private military company Wagner has suffered 30,000 casualties. But the front extends 50 miles north and south, so Ukraine will have to hold off that Russian wave while also preparing to launch its own counterattack. That will probably have to wait for some Western armored vehicles that uh, the U.S. certainly hopes arrives in the next few weeks. Uh, and the U.S. and Ukraine admit that what happens on this front over the next few months, both the Russian offensive and the Ukrainian counteroffensive, will help determine the fate of the war. And, of course, we're coming up on the first year anniversary of this uh, full-scale invasion. Is the United States planning anything or doing anything to mark it? The highlight will be President Biden's trip to Poland next week. He's going to be there to meet Eastern European allies, give his big speech uh, on Tuesday night, which U.S. officials say uh, he will promise to continue U.S. support for Ukraine and to hold Russia accountable. Uh, at the U.N., there'll be a two-day special General Assembly session. Again, uh, discussions of how to hold Russia accountable and how to rally behind Ukraine. Uh, but, John, the concerns here are what Russia plans for the one-year anniversary. Uh, Putin gives a big speech uh, on Tuesday, and those Russian forces are trying to make progress clearly just a few miles from here ahead of that date, John. Nick Schifrin in Ukraine. Nick, uh, to you, cameraman Eric O'Connor and your entire team, please stay safe. Thanks, John. The Carter Center announced late today that former President Jimmy Carter has entered hospice care and wishes to spend his remaining time at home with his family. Carter, who's 98, survived cancer, but in recent years he's been in and out of the hospital after a series of bad falls at home, including one that left him with a broken pelvis. Grandson Jason Carter, who's chairman of the Carter Center, tweeted that both his grandparents are at peace. In Turkey and Syria, the death toll from the massive earthquake earlier this month is now above 46,000 people. The number is expected to climb even higher, with many still missing. But amazingly, rescue teams are still pulling survivors from the rubble of collapsed buildings more than 300 hours after the initial 7.8 magnitude earthquake. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, now in Munich, will travel to Turkey tomorrow. North Korea launched an intercontinental ballistic missile into the waters near Japan. Today's missile test comes as North Korea warned of strong countermeasures in response to next month's annual U.S.-South Korean joint military exercises. The White House and the Pentagon say the missile did not pose an immediate threat, but its range could have reached the U.S. mainland. Teams from three federal agencies arrived in East Palestine, Ohio, today as residents' concerns about air and water pollution persist following the derailment two weeks ago of a train carrying hazardous materials. 
Many residents are complaining of headaches and eye and skin irritation, and they distrust state and federal officials' assurances of safety. I am frustrated. Here I am. I just moved seven months ago. I busted my ass to make this place look like it does, and I got to move because I'm not safe being here. There is no way we are safe being here. State health officials maintain that air quality and municipal water tests show no problems. Funerals were held today for the three students killed in this week's mass shooting at Michigan State University. Friends and family bid a final farewell at the funeral mass for Brian Fraser, one of the students killed. Five other students were injured. Police are still trying to determine a motive. And another community, this one in rural Mississippi, is reeling after an alleged gunman killed six people yesterday, including his ex-wife and stepfather. And the United States and Canada have called off searches after failing to find any remnants of the three objects shot down over last week over Alaska, the Yukon, and Lake Huron. The U.S. Intelligence Committee says the objects were most likely harmless research or recreation devices. Meanwhile, today in Munich, Secretary of State Blinken met with his Chinese counterpart for the first time since a Chinese spy balloon entered U.S. airspace. Still to come on PBS News Weekend, the importance of training people who take care of loved ones with dementia and the story of an enslaved man who helped create some of the most iconic monuments in our nation's capital. This is PBS News Weekend. From WETA Studios in Washington, home of the PBS NewsHour, weeknights on PBS. Childhood trauma can have lasting psychological effects. And now Laura Barone Lopez reports that a new study has found that early childhood stress from things like poverty and trauma can actually change the structure of children's developing brains. For this study, researchers at Harvard analyzed thousands of MRI brain scans of children ages 9 and 10. They were able to identify small physical changes in children facing higher levels of adversity. These changes could play a role in mental health issues later in life. They concluded that black children are more likely to be affected. Nathaniel Harnett is a neuroscientist at McLean Hospital and an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He's the study's senior author. Nathaniel, thanks so much for joining us. How did you identify the children facing adversity in this study? Thanks for having me. We looked at indices of adversity um, for participants that uh, participate in the Adolescent Brain and Cognitive Development Study. This is a multi-site longitudinal study happening across the United States. And we looked at things like neighborhood disadvantage, how much resources that the kids had in their neighborhoods, levels of family conflict, you know, fighting within the home, and things like material hardship, how hard it is to put food on the table. And when we looked at those variables, we really saw that over and above, black children in the sample had much more exposure to adversity than white children in the sample. And so then you uh, specifically looked at the MRI brain scans of, as you said, black and white children. And what did those scans reveal? So we looked at MRI scans, and we looked particularly at brain regions that are involved in emotion, helping us regulate our response to potentially threatening events in our environment. And we think that these brain regions are important for 
psychiatric disorders like post-traumatic stress disorder. And when we look at those brain regions, when we compare white and black children exposed to different levels of adversity, we see that black children have relatively smaller volume of these different brain regions compared to white children. These aren't massive differences, but they are significant. And part of what we worry about is how those might change over time as these kids get older and contribute to other mental health disorders. And it was a lower volume of gray matter, correct? Yes, it was lower volume of gray matter. And so specifically, when you say that that impacts black children more, what does that translate to in their lives? It's hard to say exactly from this study what that translates to, but we know from the literature that lower gray matter volume in regions like the prefrontal cortex, like we saw here, are associated with, again, psychiatric disorders like PTSD, depression, and anxiety. And so as these kids continue in the study, as we look at what happens to their brains later on, Part of what we might see and part of what we word we might see is an increased incidence of these psychiatric disorders. And was racism at all one of the stressors that you looked at or the, the impact of racism on these children and their brains? We looked at indices of structural racism in this study. So we looked at things that are impacted by socio and historical um, decisions that have been made that disproportionately impact black children and other racially minoritized children. Part of the reason we didn't look at racial discrimination is we didn't have data from when the kids were nine to 10. We only had that data as they got older. Um, so it's difficult really to say what the influence of racial discrimination might have been here, but we're hoping to look at that in the future. And are these changes reversible, the changes that were made uh in these children's brains? And what do you think policymakers could do to fix it? I think the fact that the differences we see are so small indicate that they are potentially reversible and that by increasing the amount of resources that parents have, that these children have access to by improving their neighborhoods, those are the types of things that we think at a structural level could benefit all kids, not just black children, but white and black, and really help to reverse these sort of damages that we see. As a neuroscientist, it's hard to uh, come up with policy decisions, but I think anything that's really going to help diminish these structural inequities that we see that are having real impacts on these children is going to be beneficial. What limitations do you think presented itself in this study, and what uh, do we know about the impact on potentially other ethnicities? I think one of the major limitations is one that you've hinted at, and that we only looked at black and white children in this study. Um, these, again, it's a relatively restricted rate age range. They're only about 9 to 10 years old. And so we really want to look and see at earlier ages, at further out ages, what might be happening over time. Because of the way that racism and structural racism can interact differently for separate racial and ethnic groups, we really want to bring on more researchers with expertise in these areas before we go digging around and try to figure out what's happening there. One of the things that you wanted to do in this research was to dispel this idea, this folk belief that black and white people have different brains. Do you feel like you accomplished that? I feel like we've contributed to that literature in a positive way. I think, as you've noted, there seems to be this idea that people are essentially different. And I think what we're really showing here is that a really huge part of what's different between black and white kids is that they're exposed to disproportionate burden of adversity. And it's really hard for everyone to be playing on the same field and having the same outcomes when the game's rigged against some people. Nathaniel Hartnett, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me.
A diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease can turn loved ones into caretakers. Each year, according to the Alzheimer's Association, more than 11 million Americans look after family or friends with Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia, unpaid and usually untrained. Many up in their lives to devote themselves to the task. That lack of proper training can affect their own health. The CDC says that these caregivers have an elevated risk of depression, weakened immune systems, and early death. Tipa Snow is the founder and CEO of Positive Approach to Care, which offers training for dementia caregivers. Tipa, do we have to rethink our approach to caring for people with dementia? Yeah, so if we get an early recognition of what we're looking at, it helps us get ready for this transitioning. And if I then get a little bit of training so that when somebody says to me, I never talked to you, and it's like, well, we just talked 20 minutes ago. If I'm trained to say, oh, so I've not talked to you lately, it tends to result in less stress and distress in the engagement. And as the condition changes more, we're better prepared to be in the right place at the right time or know when I need help. I'm not able to do this without greater amounts of training or I need to switch places. I, I'm not meant to be a hands-on person. I can guide and that's what I'd be best at. We talked about the health effects on, on care, these caregivers and you talked about the stress that they may feel. Is there an effect on the patient receiving care? There is. It turns out when caregivers are stressed out, that stress translates into greater probability of a behavioral reaction, a lesser ability to connect and communicate, a greater possibility of an attempt to elope, which then just perpetuates the problem. I want to play a, a little sound for you. This is uh, Jacqueline Revere. She's a TikTok creator. She's posted content about her caregiving journey. And she recently told us about the emotional toll she feels. It was the moment that my mom forgot that she was my mom. And it broke my heart. Caregivers need to feel seen. Caregivers need support. Caregivers need the social system to support them also. What would you say, Dor? You're absolutely right because the system as it exists is not supporting the providers of care for people living with dementia. About 70 to 80% of care that is given is given by families, friends, and unpaid individuals. And it results in social isolation and a sense of helplessness. And that absolutely is not reasonable. Tell us about the training that your company, Positive Approach to Care, offers. We start off with fairly simple ideas like how do brains work and what can happen to yours if we don't do some retraining. And then it's often simple things like if the person's visual field is getting smaller and smaller, then when you want to interact, you want to make sure you are where they can see you. Recognizing that language rhythms can be picked up, but language content is missed can make a big difference. So I want to use a visual cue, not just verbal information to share. Are medical professionals getting enough training in, with Alzheimer's? We are probably about 25 years behind where we need to be in this moment of time. Whether we're talking about physicians or nurses or rehab professionals, social workers, 
um, it's seen as a sidebar rather than a major player in what we're going to be experiencing in this this time period, this next generation, as the baby boomers are hitting a stride of developing dementias at a high rate. Tipa Snow of Positive Approach to Care. Thank you very much. Finally tonight, part three of our series, Hidden Histories. Across the United States, the legacy of slavery can still be seen on university campuses and at the homes of slave-owning presidents. But what about the enslaved people who built them? Tonight, we tell you about a man who helped create some of America's most well-known monuments. Some of Washington, D.C.'s most familiar landmarks were built with the labor of enslaved people, their accomplishments largely lost to history. Historian Sarah Fling of the White House Historical Association has researched their contributions. What would Washington look like if not for enslaved labor? Washington, D.C. is absolutely built on the backs of enslaved laborers. The federal government considered them to be a cheap and bountiful workforce, especially when there weren't artisans living in the District of Columbia yet, as it hadn't really become a bustling city as it is today. Fling says one of those enslaved laborers was Philip Reed, a trained sculptor who likely learned his trade from the man who enslaved him, Charleston, South Carolina sculptor Clark Mills. For an enslaved person, was that unusual? There was a lot of enslaved craftspeople, actually. Jermaine Fowler is the author of The Humanity Archive. When we think of enslaved artisans, uh, they worked in nearly every craft in America, from furniture makers to iron workers to architectural artisans. After President Andrew Jackson died in 1845, Mills won the commission to design a memorial. He claimed that he would build the first bronze statue in America. He would cast it on site. And then he would also build the first statue ever in the world of a horse standing on his hind legs. Historian Kwesi Hope. So when he won that bid, who did he bring with him? Philip Reed. Their sculpture still stands in Lafayette Square across the street from the White House. In 1860, Mills, again with Reed by his side, won another important commission, casting the bronze Statue of Freedom to sit atop the U.S. Capitol Dome. So, Philip Reed, do we know what role he played in creating the Statue of Freedom? So we know for sure that he kept the fires under the molds for the bronze casting process of this 19 and a half foot sculpture. So this is certainly skilled labor that requires physical strength and also basic understanding of engineering. By some accounts, Reed designed the pulley system used to hoist the statue to the top of the dome. Other historians say no contemporary evidence supports that claim. But records like this pay voucher show that Reed worked nearly nonstop for almost a year at a wage of $1.25 a day. He was actually paid more than the craftsperson because he was just that talented. But he didn't get to keep any of that money. The only day he had a little bit of that money he could keep was Sundays. And we still don't know if he actually got to keep that money on Sundays. After emancipation, Reed stayed in Washington and worked as a plasterer. He changed the spelling of his last name from R-E-I-D to R-E-E-D, perhaps to mark his status as a newly freed man. And the indignities that he faced in life did not end with his death. 
The very first cemetery where he's buried closes a few years after his passing, so he's disinterred and moved out to Columbian Harmony Cemetery, a massive burial ground for African Americans in Washington, D.C. And several decades later, he's disinterred again because in 1960, all of those bodies are removed in order to eventually make room for the Rhode Island Avenue Metro stop. Despite his contributions, his final resting place is unknown. I think that's one of the main reasons that these stories like this need to be recovered to show that black people had a very heavy hand, literally had a hand in the founding of the nation. We hope that when people walk past the Capitol, either working here in D.C. or visiting as tourists, they remember this contribution that Philip Reed made to this symbol of freedom, even when he didn't have it himself. Now online, what we know about the chemicals on board that train that derailed in Ohio. All that and more is on our website, pbs.org newshour. And that is PBS News Weekend for this Saturday. I'm John Yang. For all of my colleagues, thanks for joining us. See you tomorrow.